and welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. This is the podcast, or this is a podcast about words and language and whatever my co-presenter and I can come up with essentially. And my co-presenter is none other than the brilliant Giles Brandreth. Hello, Giles. It's good to be with you again. And I'm excited about this week because we're talking about one of the words or the subjects that I think is fundamental to everything. And it's energy. Yes. Years ago, when I was doing work on, um, I was trying to write a book about what drives people, what makes people, what makes life happen, what makes people succeed. I, I met a lot of very high-powered individuals who were great achievers. And several of them gave me the same answer, most pithily put to me by a man called Lord King, who was then running British Airways. I said, to what do you attribute your success and the success of your company? He said, energy, energy, using my own and harnessing that of other people, energy, drive it forward. Energy is everything. Where would we be without energy? So given that there is literally in the world an energy crisis with the cost of the energy that we need, electricity, gas and all that going up, and also personal energy, we thought we'd talk about the world of energy. A good idea. We would. Did you know, by the way, that the word energy is linked to orgy? <laughs> no. So all is not lost. Also, <coughs> I've just given Giles a heart attack. No, well, it's quite, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's a, for me that would be a trip down memory lane. I mean, just like, actually, uh, orgy be a trip into fantasy land. I've never. Have well, you ever taken part in an orgy? Of course not. No, not have I. But no. when I was when I was at university, there were some people I knew. Who didn't want quite an orgy, but uh, they they took off all their clothes and they sort of uh, males and females and sort of took showers together. It was like an orgy. I didn't take part, but no. I knew it was going on, and I I didn't have the nerve to take part. You know, and the fact uh, well, here I am, fifty years later, still thinking about it. I think still yes, I can it. tell. I wish I'd never mentioned an orgy, but anyway, it well, explain. Go- you got, I'm sorry, you can't say energy is linked to orgy and then not. I mean, I was spluttering into my <laughs> and to allergy, and to allergy as well. Oh, well, so that, that's more we're like allergic it. to orgies. Um, yeah, have, have you have you had the monkeypox? Speaking of that, no, no I hope not. Thank tell goodness. us about the connection between the word energy and the word orgy. Well, their link is at the Greek ergon, meaning to work, and an allergy is sort of working alongside something. So there's something that's not quite right because there's something kind of interfering. And an orgy, I suppose, is all about the energy that you put into different matters, really. Uh, but yeah, it's it's to do with ergon meaning to work. And of course, work can mean lots of different things in lots of different spheres. But just before we go into the main things like electricity and um, fuel and gas and all that sort of stuff, do you remember in the 70s, and I was a bit young for this, but the three-day working week? I remember it vividly. I was already working by that time. And that was yeah. to save electricity, wasn't it? Yes. The, the government of Edward Heath was a Conservative Prime Minister in the early 1970s. They introduced a, a three-day week to conserve electricity. I mean, it was a time when there was, as there is now, uh, an energy crisis in the world caused by all sorts of things, the price of oil, among other things. Um, And so the the idea was, uh, it was one of several measures introduced at the time, that people were supposed to only use electricity, run their offices for three days a week. And most people went along with this. I mean, it was made worse 
by, I think there was industrial action by coal miners and railway workers, which also made the mining of coal at the time, which was one of our main sources of energy in those days, and its distribution more difficult. So essential services like uh, hospitals, supermarkets, I think even the newspaper, printing presses, they were exempt. But I do remember television companies were required to um, cease broadcasting at 10.30 in the evening after the 10 o'clock news. And in those days, there wasn't a lot of daytime television anyway. It was before breakfast, or yes, it was just no. It was before breakfast television arrived in this country. So, uh, and and people actually went along with it, and they they did only go to work for three days, and at home, people turned off their lights. Unless you were my mother, my mother at the time lived in a block of flats called Chilton Court above Baker Street Tube Station, and I remember walking down a darkened Baker Street and seeing, looking up at this block of flats, and seeing darkness in the building, complete darkness from the bottom of the building to the top, except for four windows, a blaze of light. My mother. Oh. She pretended that she hadn't heard the news, <laughs> that somehow she turned on the television, it wasn't working properly, so she'd abandoned it. She pretended she didn't know what was going on, and she blithely carried on as if nothing had happened. I said to her, Ma, we're supposed to be conserving energy. Ooh, I don't think it applies to media. Um, you know, I've got to boil my egg. I must have my cocoa at bedtime. Extraordinary. Some oh. people are extraordinary. Well, should we start with electricity? Yes, please. Because um, I, I love the origin of this one. It's quite unexpected. It actually goes back to the Greek electron, meaning amber, uh, believe it or not. Um, amber we know really as a beautiful, precious stone, and you'll find it in, in jewellery. But the ancient scientists, if you like, the alchemists, discovered that when you rub amber, it creates this charge of well, this this power, really, this charge of static electricity, I guess, and it's able to pick up light objects such as feathers. And it was later used for the charge itself rather than the stone. But that is how it began with this sort of observation that amber had these special qualities. And the first usage of the English word electricity is in 1646 in mm. a work by Sir Thomas Brown. And they talk about an electric or an electric body that attracts straws, for example. And so, yeah, a, a simple, a simply put, electricity was originally the property of behaving like an electric, uh, if you like. And it was only later that it shifted to mean the cause of the attraction instead of the property of being attractive itself, if that makes sense. I mean, Thomas Brown was a, one of the most remarkable people who ever lived, born at the beginning of the 1600s. And he was a true polymath. And, and I think lots of phenomena and in perhaps lots of language connected with science and medicine uh, and also more esoteric subjects uh, comes from his, his work, even though he isn't so well known today. Yeah, and he wrote something called the Pseudodoxia Epidemica, didn't he? Which was quite a seminal, seminal work. So that's electricity for you, and really, really ancient origin, as has gas, actually, uh, which I love. Now, that was only coined in the 17th century, again, by the Belgian chemist and physician. He was called Johannes Baptista van Helmont. And he was the first scientist to realise that there are gases other than air. He discovered carbon dioxide, for example. But he based gas, believe it or not, on, again, a word from the ancients, which was chaos, chaos. Now, the oh. Greek chaos meant 
a gaping void or a chasm, but then came to mean the kind of formless matter out of which the universe was thought to have been formed. And because it was formless and quite random, we get today's sense of chaos, confusion and disorder, and that was first given us by Shakespeare. But yes, he used it to describe things that were other than air and this substance out of which it was believed the universe was formed. Well done, him. That, isn't it? Hmm. To gas, though, as in, you know, gassing and gossiping. Well, not gossiping, yeah. gassing, talking excessively. Mm. People say, oh, stop. Well, they, they don't anymore, but it used to be kind of slang for, for, for talking. Yeah, stop gassing. I think people would say that today, stop gassing. That's simply letting out air, I think, in that you're, you're talking, so you're just blowing out hot air, essentially, if you're, if you're gossiping a lot. And why are you, ha- if you're having a gas, you're having a good time? Um, so, I mean, to, to say to someone that they're gassing is a bit oh, pejorative, it's a gas. isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's interesting, well, isn't it? I think it probably means that you are charged. It's the same idea, maybe, of sort of having energy, perhaps. And in in the jazz age of um, 1940s America with Charlie Parker, etc., gas meant to excite or to thrill, um, you know, oh. to impress or to please somebody in, enormously. So it just meant extremely pleased or thrilled, you know, as opposed to the horrible sense of being gassed and you know literally killed by poison gas which of course we associate with it with the holocaust but yes it had also the sense of being drunk or intoxicated so this is kind of parallel life in slang that was going on with that word my father always pretended that when he was young which would be the 1920s uh he had had experimented with laughing gas oh, and yeah, that he, yeah. he maintained that people used to do this you know you, you'd get you go to a party and you get a canister Oh, really? Yeah. They do, do they? Well, I don't see it with canisters, but they buy the helium balloons and then they deflate them and suck in the air and then they talk like Pinky Perky, Pinky and Perky. Oh, I mean, it's nitrous oxide, isn't it? It is, yeah, but I think, isn't it a helium balloon? Also, it... I doesn't I have nitrous oxide in it, I think. We, we don't know it... our chemistry, do we? Um, is it safe, do you think? Uh, in small doses, I would imagine, yes, when inhaled produces anesthesia or at lower concentrations, a feeling of exhilaration, also called laughing gas. So maybe, actually, maybe what you breathe in from a helium balloon is different. That just makes you talk funny. And laughing gas is the nitrous oxide that makes you feel elated. I think they're two yeah. different things. Well, I would go a little bit carefully. My advice to you is don't overdo the laughing gas. Not the or the helium any, for that matter. Or the helium for that matter. Very yes. good. What a gas. And why do we call, we call in this country, the United Kingdom, where the, we make the podcast, uh, you go to the petrol station and you get petrol or maybe you get diesel for your fuel. But in America, you go to the gas station. When did that difference begin and what is the origin of that? Yes, yeah, so petrol, petroleum, that has been around since Old English, believe it or not. And that has got ancient roots as well. It goes back to the Latin petra, meaning rock, which came to us from Greek ultimately, and the Latin word oleum, meaning oil, because it's the kind of liquid mixture of compounds and hydrocarbons that you'll find in rocks and that's then extracted and refined much later to produce fuels like petrol and paraffin and that kind of thing. But I love the fact that these have such ancient linguistic origins. So that's petrol. Gasoline came about in the 19th century, the mid-19th century, and I'm not quite sure why the word gas was then applied to petrol. I'm not completely sure. I mean, the lean bit is, you will find that, or lin indeed as well, as a suffix for lots of chemical compounds, etc. But I'm not completely sure why gas itself came to mean petroleum. I should know that, and I don't. So 
bear with me. Yeah, it's a shortened form of gasoline. That came about from gas and then oil and then een, a light fuel oil, oil made by the distillation of petroleum, etc. So yeah, I, I would have to be a chemist to understand what the exact link is there. But linguistically, they both had very, very different journeys and also very different um, chronologies. I haven't done any name dropping this episode so far. So no, I'm did you do happen to know Rudolf Diesel? Well, as chance would have it, he is the person who gave his name to Diesel, did he? He did. Or did you know Otto von Bismarck? <laughs> no, I did know. I did know Sheikh Yamani. Okay. Does that name ring a bell with you at all? Sheikh Yamani? No. Uh, it doesn't. Well, he was a Saudi Arabian politician and he served as Minister of Petroleum and Mineral Resources uh, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And he was a minister in the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, for 25 years. And he was the figure in the world who was considered to be responsible for uh, the oil price, the rises in oil price, the, the release of extra oil. So he, during these years when there were things like the three-day week, he was a hugely significant figure. Everyone knew about Sheikh Yamani, the great oil OPEC man. And I met him and interviewed him and found him incredibly charming. And then at the end of the interview, he said, may I put some oil on your hair? And I thought, oh dear, Ooh. I mean, this is the man. And, but anyway, his hobby was making perfume. And oh. he had made his own fragrance. And he gave me a little head massage and <laughs> applied this uh, oil Gosh, to well, my hair. Gosh, well, he did that so, to you. Oh, I yes. love head massage. Massages. Yeah, well, I've, there you I've are. So I, I had, uh, this will only impress older listeners, but if you are of a certain age, I think you will be impressed that you're listening to somebody who once had a head massage <laughs> and oil applied by Mr. Opec himself, the great Sheikh Yamani. Some unguents. Lovely. Yeah. What's the origin of the word unguent? Is that interesting? Unguent goes back to, as a Latin for ointment, but it also gave us unctuous because somebody who's unctuous is quite oily. I talked about coal coming up from the ground and mm. Oh, I need to go with... back to diesel. Of course we do. Absolutely. Tell us about Mr. Diesel. Yes. Well, diesel. I just, I find diesel fascinating because um, it's got a little bit of a, a murder mystery behind it, potentially. When... Otto von Bismarck, the German Chancellor, declared war on France in 1870. He unwittingly was, was essentially paving the way for the invention of the diesel engine because at that time, Rudolf Diesel was living in Paris. He was a young man, German parents, but the outbreak of war forced him to flee to England with his family. And no sooner had they arrived than Rudolf's uncle in Germany offered to take care of the boy until the war was over. So he was put on a train with his uncle's address on a card tied around his neck and the, the, the trains weren't running on time. This was war. It took this young boy eight really long days and he remembered this. And when he grew up, Rudolf apparently was determined that those steam engines that carried him to his uncle should be replaced by something better. So it really inspired him to conduct numerous experiments and and some of them were pretty lethal one of them nearly killed him because his first diesel engine exploded but he kept going and he tried alcohol he tried peanut oil and then finally found this crude oil that he uh, that he's as fuel for his diesel engines but the reason I mention this sort of murder mystery is that he became very rich and famous, as you would expect, but he died under very mysterious circumstances, unfortunately, because he was travelling to England on a cross-channel steamer 
And this is maybe opening decade of the 20th century. And he was on deck. He was seen on deck with his traveling companions and then retired for the night. But he didn't appear the next morning for breakfast. And 10 days later, they found his um, his body and, and they have no idea how mm. he died. But nonetheless, uh, Diesel is an eponym and uh, he gave it his name because of those experiments that, as I say, were inspired by that horrible journey that he had to make during the war. I can't believe there hasn't been a movie about this. I know, you would think so, wouldn't you? Extraordinary story. Yeah. And someone needs to actually unravel the mystery. What really happened to Diesel? To Rudolf Diesel. Uh, so, yeah, so that that is Diesel. And we haven't talked about fuel either, because that's, I, I just, what I love about this is that obviously we associate these things, these things with so much modern technology, but actually they go back to the ancient world and fuel is no exception because it goes back to medieval Latin focalia, and the focalia was essentially the hearth or the fireplace, which it's related to the word focus. So the focus of any house was the hearth or the fireplace oh. because that's where people gather to keep warm and to cook, etc. It took on our modern sense of, you know, the, the sort of central point or the burning point of a lens, etc., the point at which raised meat, etc., etc. It's not amazing. That is because, as you know, one of my great sayings in life is don't dabble focus. And I never knew that that's the uh, it's the fireplace that is the origin, the focus of the house. Yeah, and it oh, gave it's... us fuel because of that hearth, and it also gave us foyer because this area in the theatre was where the public could gather during intervals, where the focus was, so people would go there, and often, of course, it was lit by a big fire. Oh, and there's good King Winslessness gathering winter fuel. Well, of course. And the winter fuel he was gathering was simply. Sticks wood. and wood yeah. to create this fire that would be the focus of the home. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. It's great, isn't it? Have we got time quickly before the break to give me the origins of coal and oil? Uh, yes, I can definitely give you coal. Um, so that is Old English, this one, and it is Germanic. So it came to us from our Germanic invaders, but it meant a sort of glowing ember, really, coal, as it was, C-O-L in Old English, rather than the substance that produces that glowing ember. And uh, and eventually it was it was transferred. And there are a lot, I think after the break, we could should do some idioms like hauling someone over the coals because not very pleasant, but you know, a lot of people might not know where that began, for example. Um, and oil, uh, I have to admit to here that I always thought that was Germanic, but it's not. It's Latin, oleum, which referred especially to olive oil, uh, believe it or not. And then that came into French, well, old French is well, O-I-L-E, and then eventually it came in to English, meaning the kind of viscous, viscous liquid, if you like, particularly the one that nowadays is derived from petroleum. So that's oil for you. And crude oil is so named because in Latin, crudus meant unrefined. It's why the crude humour is unsophisticated. But crude oil, of course, is unrefined and unprocessed. One of the great mysteries of my childhood, I used to love watching the Popeye cartoons on television. And it was clear to me that Popeye and olive oil were not man and wife. He seemed to have olive oil as a girlfriend, and yet there was clearly a child called Sweet Pea. Oh, yes. And I, as a little boy, couldn't understand how these people, Popeye and Olive Oil, had this child, Sweet Pea, when they weren't married. Yes. Is that because he explicitly called her his girlfriend? Yes. I don't ah. think they were married. In fact, I think Sweet Pea may not necessarily have been his offspring. No. Th oh, this no, is... I love that. I'd never, ever thought about that. 
Well, it could be that somebody, when you write to us at the Purple Purple People, you don't have to stick entirely to asking for etymology. You can also unravel the mysteries of my childhood, if you know how to. It's purple at somethingelse.com. We want to know the truth about olive oil. Tell me, Susie Dent, why do my grandchildren sometimes call me an old fossil? It's not very, I know it's not meant in a flattering way. Do they know what they're talking about? What is a fossil? You won't like the origin either because it actually goes back to the Latin uh, fossilis, meaning dug up. Oh, try. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry about that. That is why a foss is a kind of ditch um, in French. So fossils are uh, are really the petrified remains of creatures that are dug up. um, What are fossil fuels in a nutshell? So fossil fuels are... I guess fossil fuels are the natural ones, aren't they? So again, it kind of it gives you the idea of something that comes from the earth. So they are coal or gas, and they're formed from the remains of living organisms, essentially. And strange, these, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. the world of energy again. These words have come into other phrases in the language. I'm thinking, talking about coals. You haul somebody over the coals. We send coals to Newcastle. Mm. This, I suppose, comes from a period where coal was very much part of everybody's daily life. Yes. I mean, hauling over the coals is actually really horrible. Um, Raking over the coals is the same idea because they are inspired by torture that was applied to heretics in the Middle Ages. And that did involve, I'm afraid, dragging the prisoner over a bed of red hot coals. So pretty horrible. And it was quite common in the Middle Ages. So the idiom itself uh, became popular in the 1800s, but that was definitely its reference point. Um, Coals to Newcastle is happier because coal from Newcastle upon Tyne in northeast England was really abundant. It was very famous just before the Industrial Revolution, it was really famous for its supplies of coal. And so to carry coals to Newcastle meant it's redundant because they already have lots of it. So if you're saying, oh, you're carrying coals to Newcastle, it's just there's no point. Okay. Well, I think we've only really just begun to scratch the surface with energy because I want to find out from you one day about all these measures of energy. I know you're not very good on measurements because you're the person who thought there were 12 ounces in the pound when there were 16 yeah, absolutely. But I want to hear about joules and watts and amps and voltage and um, all that sort of thing. But we'll have to do that another day. We can't do it all, can we? No, it would be lovely to, but we will definitely come back to it for sure. And I'll tell you something I wanted yeah. to say to our listeners. If there's ever a subject that you think we should be talking about, you feel we may not have touched on before, do get in touch because we really love hearing from you. And if you do want to point us in a particular direction, uh, get Susie digging away, um, looking for <laughs> linguistic fossils. fossils with this old fossil, just contact us. It's purple at somethingelse.com. So who's been in touch this week? Well, we have a great question, actually, from a doctor, Dr. Richard Simpson, and I think he is a medical kind of doctor, given his question. Whilst still medical students in Manchester, a friend once challenged me to list all of the medical or surgical specialties that end with atrix. At the time, I could only come up with paediatrics, geriatrics and bariatrics. It's intrigued and annoyed me ever since why some specialties are ologies, oncology, nephrology, etc. Some atrics, like the ones above, and some just ics, orthopaedics, genetics, etc. Please could you tell me what the rules are? Dr Richard Simpson. I think we have to do an entire episode, Richard, on at 
bariatrics, because just the words there, paediatrics, geriatrics and bariatrics, will just be fascinating to explore. Bariatrics is the essentially the branch of medicine that deals with um, obesity. So it's a brilliant, brilliant question. And I'm going to answer it as simply as I can. So ology... Those of us who grew up in Britain uh, will remember Maureen Lipman, who Giles knows extremely well, is a good friend of his, but she did this fantastic advert for BT, wasn't it, Giles? Mm. Where yes. she, British Telecom, telephone people. British Telecom. Yeah. She's nattering on the phone and she's she's felling or gushing over her neighbour's achievement, her nephew's achievements. She says, what, he's got an ology? Um, terrible impersonation of Maureen. But anyway, ology is actually a real word. And it comes from the suffix meaning a field or branch of study. So it's the comprehensive, usually scientific, but it's the study of a particular subject. And there are many, many of them. It comes from the ancient Greek logia, meaning, or logia, meaning the study of. So it actually is nothing to do with apology. That's one that doesn't belong in this family, but there are lots and lots of zoology you know, I, I mean, Richard mentioned lots there, oncology, nephrology, etc. So it is the study of a particular field. Now, atrics that are mentioned here, geriatrics, etc., that is a little bit more focused on medicine because it goes back to a, a root, Greek again, meaning healer or physician. So atrix usually was it was used on its own, meaning belonging to medicine or a physician. So the iatric art was the practice of medicine, essentially. And so that inevitably went into other branches of medicine. So clearly there's an overlap because the people who study these things will study them comprehensively and it is a particular subject. But the atrix bit belongs more closely to medicine, whereas you can have ology belonging to lots and lots of different subjects. What about other atrics? I think immediately of theatrics. Yes. Is that related in any way? Actually, that's that's a very good point. Why you always throw these things at me, Giles, and I think, why did I not think it? Why did I just Well, this is partly just... to prove to the listeners that this is a genuine conversation. <laughs> we really are. And, and Which I can't yeah, can't always No, answer. but you know, you have the answers to everything, if not already in your head at your fingertips. Uh, yeah, at my fingertips because I have the OED in front of me. Now I am wondering if, yeah, it's actually not linked, believe it or not, which is really interesting. But theatric, it goes back to the Latin theatricus, meaning belonging to the theatre. So I think if you have theatrics, you are basically engaging in theatrical behaviour. But I think those go back to theatricus rather than the iatrics that belong to medicine. Brilliant question. Very good. Well, look, keep your questions and queries coming. It's simply purple at somethingelse.com. And we get so many that we must quite soon, I think, devote another episode simply to trying to answer all the queries that come in. Oh, I love all those episodes. They're my favourites. Do you have uh, my favourite moment, really, is hearing your three words. And I try to write them down and then use them. Otherwise, I'm afraid they go in one ear, out the other. <laughs> Okay, well, these are quite unusual ones and not sure how much you're going to use them really. But the first is, I just discovered this one today and I've never heard of it before because it sounds actually really nasty. Glandaceous, glandaceous. Oh. So to be glandaceous means to have the yellowish colour of a ripe acorn. Oh. is that interesting? Uh, Very and, interesting. Yeah, so just, just I just was struck by that one today because it wasn't what oh. I thought. The next one, I think I possibly may have mentioned this before, but it is very useful. Paralipsis. Do you remember what paralipsis is? Paralipsis. 
Oh, it does ring a bell. Go on, say it again. Yeah, it's a really sneaky figure of speech where you're essentially drawing attention to something while pretending to say that you're not going to mention it. Ah. So, you know, when we say, oh, not to mention blah, blah, or to say nothing of blah, blah, actually what you're doing is drawing attention a bit. So I won't even mention the fact that you got drunk last night, Giles. Uh, So that's paralipsis, which, as I say, is quite useful, but not particularly pleasant. And the final one is agathism. Agathism is essentially the belief that all things tend to the positive. It's not quite the same as an optimist. So an optimist kind of believes that in the sort of good here and now, and that essentially the good things, you know, are about to happen now. But agathism is more fundamental that in the end, all things tend to the positive, even if the means to get to them are horrible. And I find that quite reassuring. Explain the root of that. The ism yeah. is as would be as in theism yes. or atheism. A doctrine, that, for example. Uh, yeah. It simply goes back to the Greek agathos, which actually didn't give us very much except the, the name agatha, but agathos, and it just means good. Oh, mm. agatha means good. Yes. How lovely. It I didn't nice, know that. Because the idea of Aunt Agatha um, and Agatha Christie writing Did you writing have an Aunt Agatha? No, but I feel there was a kind of character called Aunt Agatha. It's a period name, isn't it? And people of the generation of Agatha Christie, so born, as it were, 100 years ago or so. Yes. Well, I didn't realise that mm. it was a, a, a Good warm. and honourable sort oh, of Oh, that's lovely. Well, you know, that's how I want to be. Though I have to say, sometimes reading the newspapers or turning on the television or the radio and hearing the news, I do feel a little bit... Uh, negative, but this is good. Let's all try and become more optimistic and agathistic. Exactly, exactly. Um, speaking of which, do you have a poem for I us? I have a couple of very short poems. I've still got on my bookshelf Ogden Nash's Zoo. These are poems by the wonderful 20th century American versifier. And uh, I-, I wanted to make sure that I was getting this one right. It's one I-, I-, I know well. It's called The Cow. I thought since we were doing energy and gas would come up, uh, I, would, I <laughs> would give you... Yes, exactly, because the, apparently the cow is one of the main sources of, of methane gas in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. That's why we should all go veggie. Absolutely. And it's a very short poem. It's well known. It's called The Cow by Ogden Nash. The cow is of the bovine ilk. One end is moo, the other milk. (laughs) But there's another poem um, which is a little bit longer. And I'm just reading it because it's on the facing page in this little book of Ogden Nash's zoo. It's called The Duck. Behold the duck. It does not cluck. A cluck it lacks. It quacks. It is especially fond of a puddle or pond. When it dines or sups, it bottoms ups. Speaking of bottoms ups, I don't know if you heard a little bit there. Sorry, that was my cat pulling up the carpet, if anyone had the sound effects behind. Um, but yeah, that's we, quite appropriate. We actually thought it was you breaking wind. <laughs> it sounded a bit like that. Show empathy for the, the poor beleaguered <laughs> the cows. cows. Yes, uh, being yes, punished no, for naturally giving off methane gas. So it's a jolly unfair world at times, isn't it? <laughs> I ought to mention, you know, that we currently, before we disappear, we currently have 20% off on all our stock in our online store. We've got amusing merch that people might like if you're an enthusiastic purple person. Go to the link in the episode description and uh, or, or Google a Contraband Shop. 
Uh, it's contraband spelt with a K. Contraband shop, something rhymes with purple. And we've got T-shirts and mugs and totes available while stocks last. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much to all the purple people. I'm being attacked by my cat for getting in touch uh, with us in the past and also hopefully in the future. Something Rhymes with Purple. This is Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, who's with us today, and the person who just, well, he's sadly not, is he, Jazz? No, well, I've heard he's off at a high-energy orgy. Ah, oh, he's working. Yes, that's where he is, with the oil of ole. It's Gully. Gully.